Welcome to the 49th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. And I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are back after a long hiatus, and as always, we are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about this year's Monodorama Conference. So first and foremost, guys, we are not gone. We took a, an extended, unplanned break due to travel and family and work schedules and other kind of craziness the last couple of months. Those things that happened in life. Yeah, and at the conference, we were called out by some folks who listened to the show and were like, hey, why haven't you recorded in a while? And we realized that, oh, well, crap, we hadn't recorded in a long time. So we're back, and we're intending to be back on a weekly schedule. Hey, weekly? Did I sign up for weekly? Well, we have a number of topics coming up. We would like to reach out to folks and start doing some guest appearances, some interview-type things where we bring in other folks in this space to talk about things they know reasonably well. And one thing that uh, the folks at Monterama really did for us was give us a boatload of ideas and motivation for continuing the podcast. It's awesome to hear from our listeners, even if it's just, hey, how you doing? We enjoy the podcast. That means a bunch to us. Uh, that keeps us motivated. And really, if you listen rate us on iTunes. Give us a shout on feedback at operations.fm. Let us know on our Twitter feed. We'd love to hear from you and anything you might think about the show. Yeah, any feedback at all is welcome. We also want to give a special call out to our buddy Jared Watkins that we pulled back from the depths of the earth. <laughs> it's good welcome to be back. back. Yeah. About time. Yeah. You know how life goes. Unfortunately, we do. Well, I guess fortunately, but yeah, it's been it's been kind of crazy. I know for you, we the three of us were all at Monodrama this year, the Monodrama twenty eighteen in Portland, Oregon, and it's an amazing show. If you haven't been before, you really need to do, do yourself the favor and go. Even if you're not quite you new know, hardcore into visibility and monitoring issues like we are, which hey, that's what we are. Um, it's a great conference for IT professionals, uh, folks in DevOps. If you want to see how a good conference is really run, and it is a fantastically run conference. There is lots of stuff there for everyone from the CEO of your company to your manager to the worker bees that are in the trenches getting stuff done. Yeah, I was going to mention that uh, it, it's it's one of the best ran conferences I've been to. And I love the fact that it's single track. So you're not having to uh, pick and choose. It, it, it's always inevitable when you're going to a multi-day or multi-track conference, you'll see two or three talks that you want to see and they're all scheduled at the same time. And at least this one, it's like whether they're either good or bad, you, you're going to get it all. And uh, It's single so track, which is awesome. They really focus on the um, hallway track as well. If you catch what i mean there's plenty of good breaks everybody's in one space there's good food there's plenty of time to socialize even uh chat with some old vendor friends as well they actually upped the the length of the breaks this year which was very nice um in years past they had had reasonable size breaks for lunch and kind of coffee but this year they extended them on purpose to allow the hallway track to kind of expand to fill that space and i found it very helpful and very it was very welcome. Yeah, I was going to mention that the space that they're that that's selected is uh, is is just a really nice space. I mean, it's it's actually the a facility theater, is awesome, but it's it's very comfortable seating. There's power generally in in 
most of the seats, and the Wi-Fi is actually pretty reasonably uh, reliable and fast. Look, who's their uh, uh, Wi-Fi vendor again? They deserve an awesome shout-out. I've never had better conference Wi-Fi. I would have to go dig for it at this point. Sorry. Yeah, I actually want to say it's actually a wireless ISP in the area, but I'm, I'm not 100% on that. We'll blame Jason. Also, this year, there was a complete lack of conference failure. Um, last year, when we were there, there was a major power outage due to a fire in an underground vault or something, and 15 blocks of Portland lost power, and dogs and cats living together. It was awful. This year, no failure. Everything was mostly on time, except for some trains got held up by a landslide, I believe, so some, some attendees and speakers were... They had some scheduling issues, but it was it was smooth sailing on those sides. Um, we did fall over one talk to the cloud, but, but was, there was, was no hot conference uh, venue failover this year, although I've still got a couple dollars on the fact that Jason had one reserved just in case. The overriding themes this year seem to be context, having context for all the things, giving context with alerts, giving context with ownership and documentation, giving context to teams about things. Um, this extended into Ownership was a big one for me. I saw it in so many of the presentations. How do you encourage the teams that you work with to own the services they, they care for? And empathy. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say empathy was a big one. Um, there were several talks about the uh, people skills, uh, accepting other people on the team, understanding how, where they're coming from, uh, that they may not know as much as you know. Uh, just empathy was a, was a strong one as well. Empathy and sharing the fact that, that they're as overburdened as you are sometimes. So sometimes dealing with pages can really be not high on somebody else's priority list. And building that little bit of empathy sometimes helps build teamwork and reach for common goals. But I think the first day and a half really sort of focused in on context, ownership, and empathy. One of the things that I always forget about these conferences is when they start, they usually try to pace the, the conference so the, the talks run along a theme and you have a story to tell. And I always find the first day I'm thinking, okay, there's a lot of soft skills stuff here. There's a lot of the empathy and the reaching out to teams, but it's not a lot of hard technical and I'm always kind of like, what's going on? Like, I thought this conference had a lot of had a lot of both. It was really technical and had a lot of the empathy stuff. And Jason actually called conference. out. Yeah, well, Jason called out in the middle of the the second day, I think, and he said, "Hey, my pacing's on this year. Everything's going really well. Um, we're going to start a lot of the harder tech talks on you know tomorrow morning." And I was like, "Oh, okay. That that's actually he's calling out specifically what he's doing, which made me remember that okay, yeah, this this conference does have a flow to it, so." Especially for these things, don't get bogged down in the first day going, I wanted to hear somebody talk about something really super technical. And it's like, yeah, it's coming. It's just wait a little bit. Yeah, it's clear that Jason has really listened to the folks that go to the conference and and taken their desires and how they think that the conference could be better run really into consideration as, as how he designs and runs a conference. My only negative that with me being on the East Coast and with the number of conference days that I'm given by my employer, uh, I usually have to take out take off on on Wednesday, which is usually the most technical of the days. So I generally have to miss uh, the last two or three talks, which is the only, I guess, negative for me anyway. Yeah, I 
I totally get it, but I kind of would more appreciate some of the more technical talks being scattered throughout, I think, myself, just to give my brain a chance to flip back and forth and to process better. The last day was, buckle your seats in, here we go. Yes. Yes. Nine o'clock in the morning after vendor parties, that can be rough. Speaking of vendor parties, uh, didn't you have an Elasticsearch meetup that you kind of organized or whatever? Yeah, I helped set up an Elasticsearch meetup with uh, with fellow conference attendees. We went to one of the local bars and we had probably 15, 20 folks just sitting around talking about the various ways that we use Elastic. And it reminds me of how important the networking and the social side of this conference really is. Like really half the value of the conference comes from the people you meet and the relationships you build. You say, how does this actually work? How does this in production, I'm trying to do this thing and it's not working. What's, what's going on? How can I make this better? And the, the meetup was really, really good for that. Um, apparently one of the elastic folks who was there called up PR and said, Hey, there's a meetup. I should put my card down. Right. And PR's like, Oh yeah, you should definitely do that. So we all got a couple of free beers and we were, it was, it was really pleasant. And again, with the spacing of the the breaks and everything, we had a, a fair amount of time between the end of the day's talks and the start of the evening party. So it was pretty easy to slide in like, Oh, we'll go, we'll go meet for an hour and have a beer or two and then go on to the next thing. And some folks weren't drinking they were just hanging out. But it was really nice. Yeah, we I uh, went to a few vendor vendor parties as well, and on that night, or yeah, I was I guess it was Monday's night, and uh, yes, it was it was very the scheduling was very nice to where you could go, you could uh, talk, do a few things, and then go over to the the after party, which was also very nice and and would involved more talking with more people. Which I, I'd say to your point that uh, the major benefit to me with this conference is the networking aspect of it. Um, getting to have those relationships with people who have either been there and done that with, with what you're trying to do or are trying to discover the same thing that you're doing and can help you along the way. And you are much better at that than I am. I I always kind of falter at that. And I remember a couple of years ago we were there. And you're like, oh, let's have dinner with Theo. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, Theo, the, the CEO of Circonis. I'm having dinner with him. You should join us. Really? Yeah. I mean, just you just roll into it, and it was kind of eye-opening how easy it is for some of these relationships to be built if you just walk out of your comfort zone, which a lot of us are loath to do, and just talk to people. Exactly. And I totally admit the social aspect is not my forte, really. But at a certain point in one's career, you no longer have your college buddies to shoot off a, a few ideas about. Where do you go to find intelligent, smart people that are at your level that you can bounce around an idea, ask a couple questions to? And Monotorama provides it in spades. So I was kind of thinking that we should go through our favorite talks. The The conference organizers have put up all the talks now, so you can go watch them individually instead of having to pick through the, the full stream. And there were a bunch of really good talks. So I think we should each have, what, one, two talks? that we want to call out? I've got to. Well, let's go around the circle and talk about a talk, and uh, we'll see what happens. So the first talk that I'm going to call out is The Present and Future of Serverless Observability by Yan Ki. And I can't pronounce the names correctly, so I apologize. I'll put a link to the, sh- the video in the show notes. But it was a talk about building an API service entirely in Lambda functions and other AWS kind of build-as-you-go pipeline pieces, like the API Gateway and other other stacks 
and all of it's done without EC2 instances or other, you know, traditional Linux server VMs. And it was amazing how quickly the pipeline gets com complicated. There were 80 or 90 pieces in one of the examples he had. But bang for your buck, it's ridiculously efficient and very, very cheap as long as you're watching what you're doing. Um, there was a lot of interesting notes in the talk to take, take into account, especially the the cold start feature of Lambda Functions takes a long time to spin up, and then you can run it again iteratively quickly. So you had to be careful about how you time things and how you move things through the pipeline and how you size your instances. Um, and he also was talking about if you're trying to pull metrics off of a Lambda Function and you're doing a metric per call, that's really expensive in time. But if you're batching metrics and then the... The, the runtime ends because it's finished its, its allocation of resources, you don't get the last batch. So you have to carefully balance how you're going to do that. The other thing that made, this made me think about is if there's any piece of, of you that says, hey, I'm not really sure we could run this thing in Lambda, you should watch this talk. It's, it's really amazing to see how all the jigsaw pieces of the AWS services kind of come together. And... I'm enjoying it. I, I really want to kind of dig into it. I, I want to invent a project to find a reason to try to do this now. It's kind of cool. Yeah, uh, Lambda is definitely on my list, especially now that they have Go support. I've been itching to actually build a small like uh, API out of it and or API backend and uh, host a uh, um, single page JavaScript app through S3 and communicate with it through API Gateway and all that mess. But yeah, time and everything. Yeah. All right, so my turn. So really my favorite talk of the conference was a really hard technical talk Wednesday. I think Jared might have missed this one, so I'll yes. edge him to watch the video. But Kale Stedman's uh, assisted remediation. By trying to build an auto-remediation system, we realized we never actually wanted one. And I was initially sort of taken by this because the... I get a lot of requests for some form of auto-remediation system. If an alert goes off, there should be some automated runbook that goes and does something smart, right? And that's always kind of fundamentally bothered me. If the machine could self-heal, then why is there an alert to begin with? Why are we making machines more complicated to handle simple situations? Kale stepped through a series of concrete uh, practices that he implemented uh, at a game company to turn a field of red, nagus, you know, horrible, the thing we have nightmares about, uh, into a nice field of green where everybody has some ownership and empathy and is working with each other to, to solve and, and manage their alerts, to have less and fewer alerts. One thing I found really interesting was he just started taking any alert that fired and dumping it into a Jira ticket for that team. And I've kind of always been scared of that solution, even though folks have asked about it um, at a couple places of that I've worked. Usually I not usually I don't want to pollute the ticket tracking system with the kind of noise that goes through pager systems. But as a good old-fashioned monitoring and metrics guy he had metrics of the amount of pages and amount of pages per team and you could see right when he started dumping them all into jira a couple weeks later there were a lot less pages and a lot less firing alerts as well um simple things like how to set up uh, elk and grafana dashboards and get them included into the alert notification you receive 
So you receive a notification. It's human friendly. You can click on the right dashboard and start to figure things out directly from that notification rather than have to jump through a bunch of hoops to figure out what the alert was about. One of the things about that that struck me and was very powerful was they use context with this to make sure that they say, okay, the number of 500s is wherever. We've also checked the number of 300s and 200s and other common failures so you don't go into the alert thinking, okay, I have to go check these six things. I, well, I, you've got most of that already together because the alert is trying to gather those pieces for you. An interesting thing uh, from those of us that come from the Nagus world, alerts are either crit or okay. There is no warn. And really, what what does warn mean anyway? I've done a lot of work in rolling out different priority level of alerts. And really, warn in Nagus is just a different priority of an alert. Treat it like an alert. And what what really... Um, sort of summed up his talk was the the three words keep pages holy very true so not having seen the talk what was his solution for warning level messages was it just you had a dashboard and people would just look at it manually or just there is no warning level it's just all crits and it was all crits but he had several different priority levels Okay, so there were still were priority levels within side of a critical... I believe so. Okay. I believe there's a couple of slides about that. Okay. Awesome talk to walk. Be in the show notes. Check it out. Yep. I'm going to have to look at that. Um, so my uh, one of my favorite ones was actually the first one, which was Optimizing for Learning by Logan McDonald. And that one was uh, definitely more you know people skills, but it was actually very good. I mean, it talked about methods of learning from like using flashcards to different um, memory models to use. To Talked help. about how to hack your own brain. Yeah. I mean, it was actually very good. Um, you know, like don't immediately Google for something when you're trying to remember it, like sit there and like really dig in your brain and uh, think about it for a second instead of the instant gratification of Googling it. Cause when you do that, you end up just forgetting it. Um, it talked about other mental models and then also, uh, you know, pair programming. Uh, I think they, uh, the, the slide was actually called Learning Together. But basically, you know, again, working together to figure things out helps and shared context as well. Yeah, I really liked that talk a lot. I think she did a really good job of approaching the problem with science and with specific tools and advice you could take home and implement. I know that the rise of Google has been the downfall of my short-term memory, and I think that's true yes. for a lot of us. But it really wasn't a monitoring or metrics or elk-centered talk. It was really, how do you land in a new DevOps team, pick up a couple of responsibilities, hit the ground running, and how to hack your own brain so that you can come up to speed faster. And it was just a good presentation, too. I mean, it was just, it was just a good talk all around. So I think my second pick between the two I have in my notes, is The Next Generation Observability for Next Generation Data by Peter Bayliss. Um, again, it'll be in the show notes. And he is a, an assistant professor doing machine learning work, and he has a, a huge stack and a huge team of people working on different pieces of machine learning problems, trying to do video encoding and audio stuff and other things. And he, he, dove, he dove into specifically doing machine learning models on live video or watching video to try to find things like the number of buses going through an intersection or the number of birds in a frame or th those kinds of things. And 
he was walking through how difficult and how com computationally expensive it is to run the the full stack machine learning models on things. And so they, they were starting to build specialized, lightweight, highly trained models. So they, they could say, okay, we're only looking for buses. We're not also looking for cakes and humans and robots and whatever. We're trying to get it really, really tight so we can run it tens of thousands of times faster and run it in real time rather than running a frame for every couple of minutes of processing and needing a lot less hardware. And this talk, even though it wasn't directly applicable again to a lot of the things that I work on, made me really th rethink the way a lot of folks, especially vendors, are trying to pitch machine learning models into things. That if you use the right kind of model, you're not trying to boil the ocean. You're trying to build a specialized usable thing to look for patterns and anomalies and other things. And I really like that. I like, I like the shift in thinking of how can you build a system like this? And it was interesting to watch him walk through all the video examples. Um, one of the sponsor talks was done by Theo Sloshnagel of Circonus, and he was talking about how we, how and what we measure as we move up orders of magnitude. Why are we not, metricing disk writes. Well, right now it's, it's laughably hard, but in a couple of years, well, a couple of tens of years, maybe we probably will just because we're gonna be pulling in so much data and how do we handle it? How do we process it? How do we dig through all that data? And we're going to need to use things like machine learning algorithms and to properly focus and dig into these things. Yeah, that, that was the fascinating talk. I, it, it was pretty cool to see because uh, it, it reminded me of playing. I've played around with um, OpenCL, which is a. Uh, I wouldn't. It's not machine learning, but it's a video uh, framework to to mess around with video. For, I, I use it for like playing around with security systems, and it allows you to like to track humans and things like that. And so for them to sit there and uh, sit there and try to track a bus and everything just was. It, it was just an interesting talk. So my next talk on my list is actually a lightning talk. It's Ted's Young throwing spaghetti at a blue sky. This was one of those talks. It was five minutes. And he put a little nugget in your brain and blew your mind. And then did it again. And then did it again. So what is open tracing? It's simply a point in your, in your code logic where you chunk out a structured blob of data. And open tracing can be pretty generic in that faction if you're using uh, structured data. So what nefarious things can we use this for? Why not put our tracing back in into a debugger that attaches to that watches one request, attaches to one process, sees the request, go to a different server, different process, attaches to that process, boom, you have a distributed debugger. Folks have talked to, I don't know how common really is, you know, test-driven development and other uh, forms of building your code to a specification or building your code to tests. Well, you can verify uh, that your code hits trace points and behaves as expected through these specific trace points, checking that make sure each variable you're looking for might be a specific value. Why not do trace-driven development? If your code doesn't produce the following traces for a specific request, there you have your testing. And that quickly turns into the fact that you could do all sorts of things there to actually have formal verification uh, that your code 
works in a specific proof-like manner, mathematical proof. And really by just changing out and adding logic to the back end that the trace data goes into. Really super amazing talk about what you can do with the trace data. And I'm not a, I haven't used a lot of trace data before. Um, so I knew, I knew the basics. But to be able to build a distributed debugger concept was, was really amazing. Again, in the show notes, five-minute talk. It was awesome. Yeah, it really opened my eyes. I mean, I've you know heard about the open tracing project and all that mess, but that talk really opened my eyes to what open tracing is all about. I sadly missed that talk, and I'm going to go back and watch it tonight, I think, now. Yeah, it, it was very good. Um, For my second talk, it was actually... Generally, the kind of talks that I don't like um, at Monitorama, which is where uh, some companies will get up and they'll they'll kind of move the curtains just a little bit and they'll they'll almost sort of self brag and talk about you know this fancy monitoring thing they built and how nice it is that they get to use it and then that's it that's where the show ends. Um, so Uber did the same thing. They the, this talk was called "Putting Billions of Time Series to Work at Uber with Autonomous Monitoring." Um, and I'll have the link in the show notes as well. Um, but at the end of the talk, they actually open sourced their new time series database called 3M3DB. Um, it, it is going to be interesting to look at. I uh, One of the challenges that I'm facing at work right now is long-term metric storage for Prometheus. It'd be interesting to see how this would, would work for that. Um, but uh, it, it, it was just nice to have a talk from a vendor or from a from a large company where they talk about this nice system that they've spent building and then actually at the end let you see it and be able to possibly use it. Um, now, the documentation is very lean right now. I'm hoping that they will continue updating that and uh, also push updates to the code itself. Uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Yeah, Uber is at a scale with their metrics that I can only dream of. Billions yes. of metrics. Yes, they are. Yes, they in are, one they system. A lot of metrics. So the the application and tools that they've put together to handle that are really pretty amazing. And that 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 talk was nice too, because there was there was some other nuggets there that that they talked about that would help if you're approaching that scale. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's just nice that at the end of the talk there was some actual meat to it and you could do something with it versus just, oh, that must be nice to work there and be able to use that. One of the other things that I find interesting about the this conference in particular is the relationship the conference has with their vendors. They, they obviously need vendors for support and like financial and otherwise, but they want to be very careful on who they allow to be a vendor. And they don't want vendor talks to become like pe people who are speaking in traditional speaker slots who are also vendors. They don't want them pushing products and they don't want the product pitches to be kind of over the top. And they are very careful about monitoring how and how the interaction goes. But there were five vendors, six vendors that were doing Prometheus long-term storage that we came across. At least. It was amazing with the, the specificity of the vendor stack that was there in terms of going to talk to people. I walked out with three very solid leads on possible alternatives to elk for logging. I'm not sure it's going to work from a cost basis, but 
it's incredible. Again, yes. I was really on a mission to find long-term storage solutions for Prometheus. There's a couple open source projects, but a bunch of the uh, monitoring and metrics vendors have jumped on that bandwagon, and they basically all have a solution for that now. It's not just one or two. It's really neat to watch how the industry has shifted um, in regards to Prometheus. I remember Monitorama 2016, which I really didn't go to, watched some of the talks from afterwards. But Prometheus was this new hot thing, and everybody was talking about it. 2017, there wasn't a lot of talk about Prometheus, and I was really surprised how much, how many of the talks and things that people were talking about were still stats D based, really. This year at Monitorama, every time somebody showed some examples or some code or something under the covers in their presentation, it was Prometheus instrumentation, Prometheus rules, however else they're running the stuff through Prometheus. Basically that everyone was running Prometheus to the point that it was boring and no one really talking about it. And the vendors have really finally caught on to that. I'm I'm really of the mind, or I'm I'm wondering if Prometheus is going to become the next Nagios in terms of the ubiquitous of it being across our industry. I honestly think it has a good shot at it. It's operationally simple as set up. It does what the job it's supposed to do really well. It doesn't try to do six other things, and there's a good community behind it. So, so short story, but like any good conference, you end it with a massive outage at your client, right? And I was really blown away watching the failure model of Prometheus just succeed. Um, it wasn't but a few minutes into the outage that things started affecting load balancing for the Graphite and StatsD stack. But as long as BGP routing was up to my Prometheus servers, I got good data. And that was awesome. Yeah, that the, the the only negative to Prometheus right now, and which like like we're talking about, a lot of people are working to solve it is, is long term metrics, and I, I think we're going to see both from a, a paid space or, or vendor space uh, as well as open source space. We're going to see solutions to that, and that will just all, in my opinion, cement Prometheus's uh, place of being the the base monitoring that everybody goes to. It was also interesting to me to see that Elk is still, by and far, the thing that people run for logging and event management within corporations. Like, even Uber, at their their crazy scale with M3DB, is using Elasticsearch as the indexing backend for their crazy metrics platform. It is... I keep on waiting for somebody to say, oh, no, we're doing something better and different and whatever, but it just keeps on coming Elk's this still way. king. I was about to say, is there anything better? I mean... I don't know. Obviously, Elk's not perfect, but there's a couple of like Splunk does things that Elk can't do, but it also costs a million times more. It's incredibly expensive. The um, only real alternatives are are vendor paid solutions, right? Anything open source wise, I haven't seen come anywhere close. Yep. Maybe I'm off my rocker, and somebody will leave us a good uh, uh, comment on our show. Yeah, if folks listening, if you know of anything better than Prometheus or better than Elk or any of those things, please let us know. We're always looking for new technologies to look at and and not critique, but kind of evaluate and understand and kind of see where the space is going. 
And if you're writing one, we'd love to have you on as a guest. We'd love to get you on to talk about why your thing or the thing that your company is using is better or different or solves a different problem in the space. You've mastered the concept of how to get your teams to claim and claim ownership of their code. <laughs> Share your secrets, please. <laughs> We're human, just like you. And please take the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast directory. It's the really the best way for new listeners to find us. Additionally, we welcome feedback. We would love to have feedback from you folks about shows we've either recorded or topics you want us to cover in the future. Leave us a comment on the website, operations.fm. Send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. We are listening. We are, we have, request lines are open. We also have Operations FM at Twitter. So please, hit us up. Our 1-800 number is... <laughs> I think that wraps up the 49th episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Thanks.